Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Liberty Report. With us today, Daniel McAdams, our co-host. Daniel, good to see you. Good morning, Dr. Paul. How are you this morning? Good. We're lucky today. We are. Yep. We have a special guest. Yes. And uh, I bet our audience, our viewers, know a little bit about him because we have this terrible habit of plagiarizing what he writes, you know. <laughs> he gives us good ideas. And that is Dave DeCamp. Dave, welcome to our program today. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Paul and Daniel. It's really great to be here. Very good. And uh, you've been uh, working for a few years with anti-war, right? That's right. Uh, I've been in the role that I, that I fill now as the news editor. I started doing that full-time in 2020. I first started sending them submissions in about 2018 and, and 2019 and got along with them, uh, Eric Garris and Scott Horton, really well. Uh, and, you know, it was a good working relationship, and I was lucky enough to be able to do it uh, full-time. Yes, I want you to tell me which, uh, what former education you had, what university you went to. But as you tell us about that, I'm interested also in, did you have a special professor or anybody teach you that led you into thinking maybe freedom is a big issue and maybe I ought to look into it? So I actually uh, went to college in the Bronx. I went to SUNY Maritime College, which was a school where you go and you get your merchant mariner's license to work on ships. Um, so completely unrelated to what I do for a living now, uh, you know, we would go out every summer on a training ship, or go across the ocean to Europe. And, you know, those experiences definitely impacted me. And, you know, you can do a lot of thinking, you know, when you're sitting in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> and after college, I worked on ferries. First, I worked on the Port Jeff Ferry on Long Island, which is where I'm from is Long Island. And then I worked on the Staten Island Ferry in New York City. And it was funny because that was when I became a libertarian, was when I was working for New York City on the ferry. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of the way I got there was I always considered myself very anti-war. I kind of considered myself a leftist just because those were the people that I saw in front of me that were more anti-war. And it was my time at the ferry that I started listening to the Scott Horton show and watching this show, The Liberty Report. This show actually had a pretty amazing impact on me. You know, I've always been a fan of Ron Paul, you know, the politician, and actually read and the Fed, you know, when it first came out. And I remember thinking, yeah, that, that all makes sense. Um, but the anti-war stuff was always what drove me the most. And it was during the early years of the Trump administration when he ramped up airstrikes, you know, everywhere. He was supporting this brutal war in Yemen. And nobody was talking about it. Everybody was talking about Russiagate and Stormy Daniels, kind of all this, this <laughs> superficial stuff in Russiagate, which was complete nonsense. So I was really impressed to see you and Daniel covering this stuff, being consistent and principled with your non-interventionism. And it was that. And again, Scott Horton and Eric Garris just speaking with them and Justin Raimondo, you know, reading all of his writing, kind of digging into the archives at antiwar.com that I became a libertarian and, and I liked the principle of non-intervention, you know, uh, and I believe, you know, freedom. I've always been very freedom-minded. Thanks to working for antiwar.com, I got out of New York City and now we live out in the country down in Virginia and, and I feel much more free. Um, so it's all very compatible with the way I always wanted to live, you know, freedom-minded and the anti-war stuff was always kind of what drove me the most because I saw it kind of as the most morally wrong, the most obvious, you know, evil thing that our government does. 
that's for sure. Daniel might have a <laughs> question for well, you. Well, I mean, I just find it fascinating, Dave, because that's exactly my conversion, but one generation earlier, so 20 years earlier probably, and that I was sitting in my, in my apartment in Budapest where I lived at the time. Uh, the internet, believe it or not, had just come out. <laughs> <laughs> my kids will make fun of me for saying that. But, um, and I found this site, antiwar.com. And I knew because the war in Yugoslavia was about to start, and I had spent a lot of time there, and I knew what a terrible, terrible, evil idea it was. I did not consider myself libertarian at all. I didn't really think much about politics at all, maybe vaguely conservative. But I knew that this war was a disaster because I'd spent a lot of time there. And so I kept reading. I discovered this guy called Justin Romando, and the stuff he was writing <coughs> every day. He wrote a column every day back then, which I don't know how he did it. Um, and that was my gateway drug. I started uh, from, uh, from antiwar.com, then I heard of Lou Rockwell, and then I started reading Lou Rockwell, and then I kept going down the rabbit hole. So it's just kind of interesting, and it actually uh, makes me quite happy to hear you kind of took the same trajectory, but a generation later. And antiwar is the same catalyst for the uh, conversion of, of, of your mind. Very good. Yeah, and that's what's so amazing about it is it's been around since 1995. They've been doing it. And, yeah. and stayed consistent for so long. Yeah, did you know Justin at all, or had he already passed when you got involved? I didn't know. When I first got involved, it was when his health was really deteriorating. Oh, so yeah. unfortunately, I never uh, got to know him. Yeah, we had a love-hate relationship for many years. <laughs> he was the greatest. Well, Dave, I, I like the way in your introduction that you used the word uh, that I like, non-interventionism, you know. That, I think, says so much. And you can apply it, you know, monetary policy, all economic policy, the war policy, personal liberty. And it's, it's non-complex, you know. And, of course, non-intervention uh, automatically uh, gets you into the camp of, well, you're, you can't be a violent person. You can't initiate violence against other people. And I'm always fascinated with the history of all that because, uh, you know, from the earliest of recorded history, it was known that lying, cheating, and killing wasn't the best thing for society. So it's been around for a long time. I, I just keep wondering why we don't do a better job, you know. We, I think we have a fantastic philosophy, and you do your share of work, and we keep plodding along. But I still think one of the biggest things we have to do is make an effort to get our message out. And the, the wonderful thing to reassure us is that it doesn't matter what you think you have done, because you probably don't know exactly how many people you have influenced. And uh, we have no idea that, that uh, certainly when you got started, we didn't know that you, you even knew uh, our name. So this is, uh, this is to me is wonderful. And uh, I'm just wondering whether uh, you have sensed that there have been people introduced to the libertarian philosophy through foreign policy because you're the ones that, you're the one that deals with that uh, you know almost entirely so you must have some examples of people who have come uh, to libertarianism through what uh, anti-war has been doing mm -hmm. yeah uh, I mean I am an example of that uh, like I said I, I always considered myself a leftist you know I was a child of I was in high school during the George W Bush administration and kind of the opposition, the counterculture was more left wing. And that is sort of how I got into these issues was hearing people like Abby Martin, who's covered the Israel-Palestine conflict quite a bit, and hearing her talk about it and just say things, you know, it's I, I never really understood Israel as a state, as a modern state. 
it was something I just wasn't really taught in school. I always thought there was a state called Israel and that it was always there. And then, you know, you learn about the founding and about the current conflict today. Um, and it was, you know, I never really, when I always read a lot of, you know, leftist literature about anti-imperialism, anti-war. And, but it was when I discovered kind of the libertarian aspect of it was when I felt like I found kind of my, my philosophy. It, it, it really spoke much more to me than the leftist stuff. And, you know, that's one reason why at antiwar.com, we are a single issue website. We publish columns from people all over the political spectrum, liberal, conservative, leftist, you know, right wing libertarians. And and I think it's really important because otherwise we could just become an obsolete mm -hmm. uh, philosophy. So I do know, you know, young young people who same similar to me never really gave libertarians much of a shake. Uh, you know, from my experience growing up, I always people that I knew that called themselves libertarians always kind of seemed like hypocrites to me because a lot of times they're really bad on foreign policy. <laughs> um, but then you discover, you know, kind of this camp of libertarians. And, and I very much consider, you know, antiwar.com and the Ron Paul Institute, you know, like kind of almost sister uh, projects. You know, we work very close together and have the same philosophy. Same thing with the guys at the Libertarian Institute. And it's exciting because there's a lot of young guys. I go on all sorts of YouTube shows and guys in their college, early 20s who are very inspired by all of us. And it's really reassuring. And it does remind you to keep going, even when you see what is going on in Congress and the White House. They're mm -hmm. trying to fund all the wars they possibly can. But we know that we are kind of still building a movement. Wonderful. Yeah, that's important is the coalition aspect, <clears throat> because a lot of people misunderstand the Ron Paul Institute, for example, think that we're a libertarian outfit. We're not. Um, we're a broad coalition from beyond left and beyond right, because that's that's how you do it. And you say you were you were uh, in high school during the Iraq War. Well, that's when Dr. Paul was building his big coalition of progressives and conservatives, you know, and, and some of them fell by the wayside when uh, Barack Obama was elected because for them it actually really was about politics. They really weren't anti-war. They were just anti-George Bush. But thankfully the smart ones and the good ones kept going like Dennis Kucinich and a few others. But, um, but it's tricky to bring that broad coalition uh, together and to focus on, you know, the issues that we have uh, in common rather than the things that we may disagree with about that aren't important. But the one thing I like about the way you approach your work, Dave, is that you, um, you grab a lot of things. I mean, you are a serious news hound. And I sometimes, when I start, I, I read constantly, but you can get bogged down. I mean, you can get just tied up. And, but you seem to have just a great sense of just sniffing everything up. And I don't want you to give away your secrets, but I mean, what kind of goes through your mind? How do you, or how do you find like, I got to cover this. I got to do that. I got to, I got to handle this. It might help the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, well, it is tough. And, you know, I got a lot of inspiration from Jason Ditz, who used to run the news uh, side of things. And it was, you know, reading kind of his short summaries of the news. Uh, it was amazing how, you know, informed I became just by reading that because the, so what I try to do is, you know, we have a, a database of news stories that our team uh, fills up and then I sort through it, usually, you know, a few hundred articles every day. And I think the things that are important to cover, obviously, is, uh, you know, when it comes to the current war in Gaza, the war in Ukraine, there's a lot there. And I kind of focus more on, you know, the U.S. aspect of it because we are writing from an American point of view. And again, this non-interventionist point of view that you know, the reason why it's so important that we cover this stuff is because our government is involved in this. I mean, if you're Hamas, if you're 
in Gaza, you know, the way that they view this war is that it's not just an Israeli war against them, it's also an American war. So we have to be aware of the places that our government is at war. Yemen is a really great example. The Mm -hmm. U.S. has been backing this brutal war there, this Saudi-led, Saudi-UAE coalition against the Houthis. And, you know, who knows? nobody knows who the Houthis are in the U.S., (laughs) if you ask them. But if you read Houthi media, they report every airstrike as U.S.-Saudi aggression, not Mm -hmm. just Saudi aggression. So it's important that we understand that. And then when it comes to other places kind of uh, around the world, um, again, kind of the things to to open up people's eyes to all the stuff that the U.S. is involved with uh, when it comes to sanctions we try to cover, although that's been tough lately because, I mean, they just sanction. They're just they're just so (laughs) sanction happy now. Um, But some things I try to cover, too, is the the maritime disputes in the South China Sea and and the East China Sea between China and the Philippines, China and and Japan that the U.S. has committed to going to war over. They say that our mutual defense treaties cover attacks on Philippine ships in the South China Sea. I mean, these are just obscure things that I, I think a lot of people aren't aware of. You know, why should they care about a maritime dispute over these rocks and reefs, you know, on the other side of the world? And it's because our government has committed to going to war over them. Uh, you know, so that's something, you know, Pat Buchanan always wrote about yeah. a lot, was all the different places the U.S has you know committed to intervening and going to war and if if they have to cash all those checks at once you know that might it might bounce right dave i want to follow up on a recent article you you wrote that was the internal state department memo says u.s is supporting israeli war crimes this issue of war crimes you know it's pretty darn broad uh but i think it's a great point you make because it sometimes wakes up so certain factions of the political spectrum. But the, the, but the whole thing is, I think of war crimes much more broadly. <laughs> you know, I think our policies are war crimes. When you think about how much money we steal from poor people in this country and, get, and, and shift it over to the military industrial complex. So it's, it's so broad in this whole idea, but it is, it is significant. And I think uh, your point here is maybe there's a shifting of attitude too, because uh, you're not supposed to criticize your own government. I got into the trouble by doing that, and then also Israel. And I wanted, as you answer that, try try to comment and and make a point about why the attitude has seemed to shift. I mean, I am I am really surprised and a bit disappointed on how much antagonism and hatred it is between the between the two. I wouldn't have a couple months ago. I would have never predicted we'd see see thousands of people in this country uh, attacking Israel. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the uh, dissent memo that was sent in the State Department. And this is pretty significant um, because it, it hasn't just been one. Uh, there's been a total of three of these dissent cables that, uh, you know, I think it's mostly at the lower and middle level of the State Department, but it shows that there is a lot of opposition to what President Biden is doing by backing Israel's war in Gaza. Just today, I read in the New York Times that there was another open letter to Biden signed by over 400 government employees, not just from the State Department and USAID, but from across the different agencies. Um, So it's definitely significant uh, dissent that's going on here. And then talking about, you know, the protests and and everything that's that's going on. I mean, it, you know, this whole thing that happened, you know, since October 7th, since that Hamas attack on southern Israel, 
you know, it's really changed things. And unfortunately, you know, from our perspective, you know, it felt like we were really making some progress there with sort of, you know, the more right-leaning people, uh, the the MAGA people, the politicians, even the politicians in Congress who were really good on Ukraine, who were really opposed to funding Ukraine, who were talking about leaving Iraq, leaving Syria. But now since that, since this Gaza war has been going on, they're voting to send 14 billion in additional military aid to Israel. Um, so it's pretty disheartening to see that. And now on the other hand, you have the Democrats who have been so bad on Ukraine. Um, <laughs> You know, you see a lot of these protests, and, and I think um, some of them, you know, look pretty, you know, hyperbolic in their rhetoric about Palestine and everything. But the main message from the real big ones that were organized by a lot of Jewish groups, actually, the main message was ceasefire now in Gaza, which I think is a pretty reasonable message that people can get behind when, again, if we look at this from a non-interventionist point of view, which a lot of people do, they might think, well, why, you know, it's not any of our business. Why should we be calling for a ceasefire? Well, our government, they say that they've been shipping weapons to Israel on a, on a daily basis since October 7th. Um, American drones are flying over Gaza. There's U.S. Special Operations Forces in Israel. This is very much an American war. Um, so, you know, I think it's good to, again, I think calling for a ceasefire is reasonable. Um, and it's unfortunate that we have lost a lot of people who were good on Ukraine on this mm-hmm. on this particular war. Yeah, it's disheartening. It was disheartening back when we lost a lot of good people when Barack Obama started bombing people. But that was were good wars. Um, on the State Department thing, though, um, I would just be, uh, be careful about the low level because I think a, a lot of the distinction is um, between career foreign policy professionals and political appointees. You're not going to have the political appointees use the dissent. Uh, channels are probably less likely because they owe the party more or the the president or Blinken or whatever more. But you do have people that spend their entire careers there as analysts, uh, and they can be GS-14s, you know, and up senior executive service. And the the reason why you have these dissent channels is to prevent circular thinking, uh, to help prevent groupthink. Uh, you know, like when you do the NIEs, the National Intelligence Estimate, you can always take a footnote. Uh, no matter, even if you're just a lowly analyst somewhere, you can take out a footnote and explain. The system is designed to allow that dissent, and it's, it's in, pra- in theory it's good, but in practice, of course, it can be tamped down. But it is, a very, it is, it is nevertheless a very helpful thing. Um, I was going to ask you about, because I think you, you touched on how radically the world seems to have changed. You can go back to uh, 2022 and the Ukraine war, but I think especially in these last few weeks, I mean, you're seeing... I think a failure of Western institutions in the wake of the Gaza unrest, because first of all, you're seeing the hypocrisy and double standards like you've never seen them before. I mean, the International Criminal Court indicted Vladimir Putin for evacuating children, evacuating them from a war zone. And they have been completely silent on Netanyahu killing 5,000 children in one month. They haven't said a word. Can't even get the White House to express concern about this. So I think if, if you're sitting there in India or the so-called global south anywhere, and you see this hypocrisy uh, in Western institutions that are primarily funded by the U.S., um, not particularly the ICC, but to certainly the, um, the U.N. funded by the U.S., and so hypocritical, so incapable of an even-handed approach, I mean, it's, it's something really to behold. I don't know if you, if you have those same impressions. Yeah, well, I think the hypocrisy, you know, to a lot of these countries, you know, uh, that they call the global south or whatever you want to call it, global majority, some people call it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, they 
I think during the Ukraine war, to them, to a lot of people in Africa, it was already hypocritical of the U.S. to be going out there and lecturing Russia. But since this Gaza war, I mean, it's become even more apparent to, to much more people now. I mean, you had Blinken and Sullivan coming out and, and you know, talking about the rules-based international order. <laughs> and now that they're backing this war that's killing so many children, thousands and thousands of children, they come out. You had the White House, the National Security Council spokesman, John Kirby. I know you covered this coming out and saying, yeah, many, many thousands of innocents have been killed in this war. You know, it, it, it is what it is. It happens. Yeah. And this guy, John Kirby, what really gets me about him, there was a press conference when he was, I think, at the Pentagon talking about Russia's war, talking about some civilians that were killed. And he got like choked up. He started crying. <laughs> yeah. And there was another interview oh, right after the Hamas attack talking about Israeli civilians that were killed. He started crying. Turn I think on it was the CNN. Tears, baby. <laughs> and then he comes out and he says, yeah, we're killing. They're killing thousands of innocent people. What Lots if? of children are being killed. <laughs> yeah. That You know, that it is what it is. Yeah. Sick. <laughs> so you see that. And it's just so. You know, it really lays bare the hypocrisy for many more people to see, I think. Yeah. Dave, I, I want to ask the question about how people treat you. You go out and you're challenging the status quo. And uh, I have a little bit of an experience for that and how people uh, respond to what we're saying. And generally speaking, can you say, is there a special way the people who don't like what you're saying, what's the matter with you, and they want to get to you? Is there, is there something that they use more often than another to try to put you down or argue against you? What, what is the most common thing that they try to make you look like you're uh, believing in, but you really don't? Well, the very common smear is that, you know, if I'm talking about Ukraine and why the U.S. shouldn't be involved, that means I'm pro-Putin, pro-Russia. I try to focus a lot on China. People call me, uh, you know, a, a, an apologist for the Chinese government, say I'm pro-China and that I hate America. Why don't you just go move to China? And now, of course, it's that I'm pro-Hamas. You know, that's always the smear. It was the smear during the Iraq war protests. You were pro-Saddam. Um, but looking back, you know, those people that protested against the war like like you were vindicated. The people that were against it were vindicated. And, uh, you know, so they could throw all these smears at me. But I just know it's not true. And, and especially from my perspective, you know, again, since I've become more of a libertarian and, you know, I'm talking about these issues kind of from the context of, of what would benefit us, what would benefit Americans. We would be much better off if we didn't have this world empire. So, you know, to call me, it's just kind of laughable to think, say that I'm pro Hamas, that somehow <laughs> I'm working for Hamas or working for China or working for Russia when it's clear that, you know, I care about this country. That's why I live here. I, I have kids, you know, I'm very serious about this. This isn't, I used to be, you know, years ago, I used to be kind of more, uh, again, just kind of anti-American, maybe just anti like, but now it's, it's really changed for me um, that I am, especially since I've had kids and, you know, I really do care about the future of this country and, and I do love this country. So to say that I'm doing this on behalf of any foreign power is just complete, completely ridiculous. That's one thing that libertarianism helps you with. You say, well, yeah, I love my country, but I hate the government. You know, they're the guys that are doing it. They're the guys that are delivering the bombs and doing all this stuff. It's not me. I'm trying to raise my kids. I'm trying to raise some sheep out there in Virginia, right? <laughs> but you know what's right. interesting? <clears throat> and I don't know if you thought about this. I don't know if you read Scott Ritter, had, uh, who's spoken at a couple of our conferences. He had a great piece that came out yesterday, and it was uh, really, really something. I think I may have sent it to you, Dr. Paul. But um, 
he's questioning a lot of the narratives about October the 7th. And I know we don't want to get too far into the, into the weeds here, but one thing that struck me is it really reminds me of the Ukraine narrative in 2022, which is that one day Putin got up and decided that he felt like invading Ukraine. There was no antecedent, there was no 2014, there was no Maidan, none of this ever happened, it was just out of the blue. And Ritter was writing about, um, you know, sort of all of the things that were initially said. The beheadings, of course, were debunked, the rapes were debunked, all of these horrific tales have been debunked. And now with the footage of the Apache helicopters shooting all of these civilians, and the fact that you released the names of the people who were killed, and at least half of them were active military, um, <clears throat> the conclusion that Scott had is that this was not a terrorist attack, but rather a military raid on the part of Hamas. And I think if it weren't for the sensitivities that are unique with our relationship with Israel, you probably would have more people digging into the fact that the, uh, just like with Ukraine, that initial narrative uh, is deeply flawed. Yeah, I think there is a lot of evidence that it does look like um, some of the, you know, there's reports of the IDF, you know, shelling houses that where there were Hamas fighters, but they also were holding hostages. Um, I think it's clear, you know, we've seen some footage of Hamas fighters going in and just firing into cars and into houses. So I think it's clear that they definitely killed some civilians. Yeah, but yeah. like you said, there's a lot of evidence here about uh, that shows that the Israeli military could be responsible for a decent amount of the civilian deaths here. So, yeah, we have to, you know, and, and you say these things and people get so angry. Yeah. Like you said, people are so sensitive about it um, that they almost can't handle talking about it. Uh, especially, you know, that's the way it is in the, in the wake of something like that on October 7th, on October 8th, if you were saying, you know, uh, let's wait a minute here, let's not back Israel, then people, everybody just throws the worst smears at you, say you're pro-killing children, and, yeah. and, you know, it turns out all that kind of atrocity propaganda was probably put out there to justify the atrocities that we're now seeing in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, Dave, I want to uh, bring back a word that you used that I use, and I think it's important, and that is the danger of empire. And uh, because I, I have trouble thinking about this whole thing, but I can, I, I can get it explained in my own mind. If you look at this empire building, and it's, to me, it's so self-evident. We're everywhere, and we have no restraints. And it, it, uh, it's blurred by the fact that they pretend there's two factions in Washington. You know, that you're going to get a different foreign policy if we just get rid of this president. You get another president, and this sort of thing. But this whole principle of empire, to me, is so so bad and I think essentially throughout my lifetime and a little bit longer the empire has been building you know and I, I see that as something very important you know to address and you have and I'd like you to mention that but then after this we're going to uh, probably close down and uh, finish our program and I, I know our viewers are going to be disappointed but just go ahead and make, make a comment about uh, the danger of empire building. Well, uh, talking about today, I mean, if you look at, again, one thing I try to focus on is China. There's been, you know, really starting under Obama, it was ramped up under Trump, and now significantly escalated under Biden was this new military buildup in Asia, in the Asia Pacific, you know, new bases in, in the Philippines and new support for Taiwan, sending a few hundred troops there. They haven't done that in decades. And this is, you know, building the empire again, you know, not again, because it's always been there, but kind of building it back to this big level while we're preparing for 
a future war with China. And, and that's one reason why I focus on China is because they're not talking about a proxy war like in Ukraine when it comes to Taiwan. The U.S. The US military is preparing for a direct confrontation <laughs> with China, even though that they have nukes. And this is the danger of empire building. Yeah. Why is it uh, our business to defend Taiwan when it risks a nuclear war? And it's not even, you know, you could forget about the risk of nuclear war for a minute. All the war games show that in any battle between the U.S. and China over Taiwan, you know, thousands, possibly tens of thousands of American sailors are going to be killed, you know, very quickly. So I think that really shows the danger of empire. And it kind of when you talk about the issue of Taiwan, it also demonstrates this empire mindset that a lot of Americans have that, oh, well, Taiwan doesn't want to be part of China. So we have to be the ones to, to stop it, um, even though if it's one thing that is always consistent when it comes to what people in Taiwan want, what the polling shows is that they want the status quo. They're, they're not trying to really disrupt and shake things up as much as the U.S. is in the current ruling party in Taiwan. But, you know, that's kind of re re regardless of that, just the, the important point here is this empire mindset that <laughs> there's a problem here. You know, Eric Garris, my boss, he always says this is his analogy, is that if you're in Taiwan and you want to be independent of China and you, you, you know, you look to the U.S. for help, that's like wanting to hire a plumber and looking at their reviews online and every review says that they did a bad job <laughs> and still hiring that plumber. You know, that's what asking the, the American empire for help is like. Just look at the destruction over the past few decades. Yeah, that's, That is such a great point in classic Eric. I mean, it just shows that we don't know what's better for other countries. You know, we don't have the knowledge. Americans don't travel. But I just had a final question if you, um, if you don't mind. And don't, don't answer it if you don't feel comfortable. But you know what, uh, Ramondo had an outsized personality. I mean, when we worked for Dr. Paul all those years, everyone in the office, when, when Justin's column came out, we read it, we talked about it, we laughed about it. When he made fun of people we didn't like, we laughed even harder. A massive, massive personality. Even when you disagreed with him, it was just a massive personality. I, I'm wondering, are you looking at somewhere in the future moving toward that direction? Uh, or do you like, um, or do you like uh, what you're doing now with the with the with the news analysis, which is extremely helpful to people? Mm -hmm. So Justin, I mean, when I whenever I read Justin's columns, it it's amazing how good of a writer he was. You know, yeah. I don't think I'll ever be able. You know, I'm not going to try to uh, do what Justin did just because he was so good and so unique at it and so talented. Yeah. Um, you know. I really like what I'm doing with the news stuff right now because, you know, personally, I'm not, you know, an expert really on, on this stuff. I'm becoming one by following the news so closely. So it's really good for me. And like I said, I think it's it's really a good way for people to keep up on everything and be and stay more informed uh, in the future. I, you know, I I am looking more toward writing. Uh, I want to do longer stuff, more research on uh, specifically the situation with Taiwan and China, but I also would like to do some more columns, you know, more opinion pieces and and stuff more in that direction of what Justin is doing. I think I would like that. But right now I feel like I'm kind of building up my resume and my credentials yeah. to, to be a voice that people want to hear. Um, you know, trust. I think that's what yeah. I have to work on. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, very Thanks, good. Dave. And I, I want to close, uh, Dave, mo mostly to express our deep appreciation for you being on, on the program today and all the hard work you put into that uh, we look forward to reviewing every single day. But uh, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, is there more than looking at antiwar.com or other publications or website that you would suggest? Or should everybody keep going to antiwar.com? Well, definitely keep going to antiwar.com. Um, people could also follow me on Twitter or X, as it's called now, at DeCampDave. You could message me on there. Uh, people could email me, DaveDeCamp at ProtonMail.com. And also, I actually have a show, uh, a podcast and YouTube show that comes out every day now, five days a week. Um, so it's called Anti-War News with Dave DeCamp. And it's basically me just going over the articles that I wrote for that day. So That's you great. We'll put a link YouTube to that. Yeah. We're also on Rumble, um, the YouTube channel I'm trying to build up. Uh, and most people listen to the audio version, you know, on their way to work or something. I put it out, you know, at midnight every night so people can listen to it in the morning. You're doing all that, and Daniel's trying to get you involved in doing more. <laughs> 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 so, once again, thanks a lot for being with us uh, uh, today, Dave. And I want to thank our viewers for tuning in today, and please return to the Liberty Report soon.